as soon as we come on here and start talking about spring as the slushy season, mm-hmm. we're working our way. Father, Father Winter, Mother Nature says, "Oh, actually, you know, well, we 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 have we have something else in mind for right. you." Pull my finger. <laughs> a good foot of snow over in your neck of the woods. You say at least ten inches, and wow. it was that. It was that heart attack inducing stuff. You know? Oh, it was heavy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I woke up with sore shoulders and sore chest and all that. Our friends over in California know nothing about that, but we love them anyway, <laughs> especially the folks over at Salastina. Salastina is classical music's wean man. By day, they're world-class performers and studio musicians who've played your favorite films. By night, they're on a mission to broaden the definition of what classical music was, is, and can be. More on them at salastina.org, and I'll highlight one of their upcoming features here in a little bit, but the more that I think about maybe now we're getting out of winter and out Mm -hmm. of snow and all that sort of stuff, I think about actually going outside and actually spending some time uh, away from in front of the computer or in front of the TV Mm -hmm, or whatever. mm -hmm. So we got to get all the bingeables, bingeables, bingeables out, (laughs) you know, bingeable (laughs) shows. We have to get all the bingeables out now, including the bingeable that comes with a fire theme song. Yeah, it does. I mean, oh my goodness, Lou Vigorison. I know that we featured this before on on the Trilogy podcast, but as far as I'm concerned, it deserves another go around. The Mandalorian theme by Ludwig Gorenson. so hard what is it about it i remember the first time that we brought this in and we talked about how how difficult it is to create heritage Mm -hmm. and lore in just a few bars of music like he did with that piece especially in a universe no pun intended where there is already so much heritage and lore and a musical aesthetic yeah it's very different than the classic classical john williams sort of approach to space music and and even star wars specifically don't you think it it could be like a neighbor a couple doors down though i mean oh of course it it still fits in yeah no yeah and that's what's so brilliant about it it fits into the what the stuff of star wars right but it's just so much more contemporary it has a it has a swag about it that Mm. that not Mm -hmm. uh, all of the uh classical orchestral music from that universe has can you put your finger down on what it is i mean is it just the sway of the music the beat of the music it's hard for me to pinpoint that that thing that stuff that really makes a great theme song like that it's the way the flutes start for me (laughs) i love that sound and you know all i can figure is that you know at one point they must have lived without their helmets on how would they play (laughs) <laughs> a flute with a helmet on. Maybe there's a, a special music colony where you know they they, they don't have to keep the helmets on. Must be. It makes me think about the evolution of classical music, orchestral music, in a broader sense. You know, let's take uh, 
the Darth Vader theme or whatever, you know, some of that classical John Williams and sit it next to this Ludwig Göransson composition mm-hmm. and use that as an example of the arc that all classical music, the whole aesthetic mm. could go toward. Do you mm. think it's safe to make that sort of analogy? What do you think of an analogy like that? That's pretty good. Um, I'm not sure where the Book of Boba Fett would fit into that, though. Um, it was okay, but it it it, yeah. it had nothing on the, this Lawrence and Fire. No, but that's no, that's a really that's <laughs> a really good that's a good analogy to use to someone who who isn't steeped in classical music. Hang on to that one. Yeah, yeah. What other sorts of TV or movie music do you feel like really went? If you know, let let's let's just go ahead and acknowledge that the old school classical John Williams stuff that is in the canon. Mm-hmm. We are putting the Mandalorian in the canon. You know that that goes in the vault. What other TV movie stuff for you goes into the vault? You talk about uh, taking care of the bingeables before the weather turns so right. you can be outside. I remember back in the day when you had to wait a week. For sure. The, for the, for the <laughs> we, next we got, episode, we got to wait a week for Mandalorian. They don't just give it to us. But some of them do drop like a whole season sure. at once, yeah. right? And for me, uh, uh, eight o'clock on Sunday nights, I had to be showered up on the sofa <laughs> in your and, PJs and ready to watch <laughs> The Sopranos. Oh, The Sopranos! Way okay. back in the way back in the uh, the late aughts and the the late nineties and the early aughts. And now that HBO Go that um, the streaming yeah. app is out there. A whole new generation has caught on to The Sopranos. It's had this whole second life. And here's this little band from England hmm. called themselves Alabama 3 <laughs> that wrote something that just you cannot disassociate it from The Sopranos. Kind of a menacing theme. It sounds like something bad is going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's good. And there you have an example of three British guys who don't have to work a day in their life from sure. the, the contract of that song. Sure. Oh man, I have not seen an episode of The Sopranos. I mean, what, what's your what, what's your what's your buy in for me? Am I, am, am I gonna? <laughs> Am I going to see some people of color? I know <laughs> you do. Okay, yep, you do, um, and it's it's racist. Yeah, okay, you just let me know. Yeah, there's racist <laughs> elements to it, and they 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 acknowledge it. You know, they, sure, that's that's part of the conversation. Yeah, is uh, the younger generation trying to get these older Italian guys to not? I see. Throw the names around and such, but really the the great thing about it is you see the the protagonist the the main character anthony soprano going to therapy mm. and the way that he tries to thread his life of crime through that needle and work through his own bag of stuff that he needs to work through wow. and you get to, and you get to see all of that unfold and 
It's it's just some really impressive acting. Well, the snow's melting, but maybe the next holiday break or, or something I have, I'll just it'll be there. Give 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 the first three a try and see mm. if I can stick around. And if they're not streaming it anymore, let me know. I have the DVDs. <laughs> you get you get, you have the box set. I do. Um, as I was doing this, hopefully final shovel of the of the season. Yeah. Uh, out there trying to get myself hard. I didn't even wear a coat. You see, I'm becoming a yep. Minnesotan. You just put on the snow pants and you get to work. You do. You know. But anyway, I wanted to have something in my ear, but just to keep me going, you know, something that I knew was going to keep me entertained. And I found myself revisiting, you know, it's not TV, but revisiting the soundtrack to the movie Django. Man, I think I've brought this on Triloquy before, but there's a track, you know, uh, uh, with Etta Deloroso at the mm. lead, Lo Chiamavano King. It's fire. Mm. And as far as I'm concerned, it definitely belongs in the classical canon of TV and film music. His name was Cain, he had a horse Along the countryside, I saw him ride He had a gun, I knew him well Oh, I heard him singing, I knew he loved someone His name was Cain. He had a brother. His only brother. And really, this soundtrack, and I'm sure that's a, a cover or, or, some, or a reimagination of the tune, but that soundtrack in general, I think, is a really great example of how to piece together different classical musics, especially American classical music. I, I know. We're just supposed to share one in, in the intro, but you know, Django was the first time I heard uh, this, this this joint, and it's a favorite of mine now for sure. Like the pine trees lining the winding road, I've got a name, I've got a name. Like a singing bird in the croaking toad, I've got a name. I've got a name And I carry it with me like my daddy did But I'm living the dream that he kept here Moving me down the highway Rolling me down the highway Moving ahead so life won't pass me by Incredible, mm. incredible. And I know there are so many people who have known Jim Croce for years, didn't sure. need Django sure. to learn the music, but that's how I came on it. And listening to that just intro almost makes me want to get a little misty-eyed. It's beautiful music, beautiful American music. If you recall, when we did the Speaker Geekers podcast, um, we talked about that very film with the Verdi operatic music. Oh, sure. That yeah, that uh, DSRA, yeah. So... You can use that to introduce people not only to Jim Croce, but also to Giuseppe Verdi. Yeah. Wow. Wow. All in one soundtrack. You know, and this thing, again, called classical music, it can go outside with us. We're talking about you know, the, the bingeables and all of that stuff, but this can really be music that we take with us out into the world as mm. things warm up and, and we uh, start, start getting out. The thing is, we can keep our little small, limited definition an approach to that phrase, or we can expand it and invite more people in where we're talking about the fully orchestral and instrumental theme music of the Mandalorian, the mm -hmm. TV music that we're talking about. This is 
classic experience. This is classic memory, you know, uh, one day nostalgia. This is classical music. And I really do believe that we just can't let the powdered wigs of the of the past just have full ownership of that phrase. No, we're here. And if we say something is classical, damn it, it's classical. It certainly belongs in that That's category fire. as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, hello, everyone. This is the Triloquy Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We're going to jump on in. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. Thank you so much for tuning in to returning listeners. We couldn't do it without you. Thank for your thank you for your support week after week after week. You are so appreciated. To new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, Triloquy is a show that takes the phrase classical music and applies it to a broader range of musical aesthetics, a broader range of conversations, a broader range of approaches, all toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing the phrase classical music. To learn more about Triloquy, to check out past opuses and to contribute, go over to our website, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Salestina, featuring on April 8th, their happy hour number 112 with Leela Dance Collective. Join them for a stunning and colorful preview of their collaboration with Leela Dance Collective, a Hindustani classical dance troupe. For this world premiere piece of choreography, Leela takes its inspiration from Derek Skye's American Mirror, which weaves musical traditions around the world into a multi-layered, opulent musical language all its own. That's happening again on April 8th at 11 a.m. at the Pompeium Room at the Doheny Mansion over on the West Coast. For more information on Salestina and their upcoming program, go over to their website, salestina.org. Huge thanks for all of their support. We have the composer Tommy Doherty joining me in the third movement. I'm, an exci- I'm uh, very excited to share that conversation with you. Uh, Scott and I, we're going to, Scott, we're going to honor two late great musical heroes That's in, the, right. in the third movement this week. Really uh, excited about that. Trump is going to jail. And we'll say a thing or two in the final movement, you know, filled with love and compassion. But for right now, like we do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but for right now, we're going to jump into movement one. Love and compassion. Amen. Who's Amen. going first? Uh, I think you're going first. What you got for oh, us? Am I? Uh, I got a sharp for this one. I'm reading from cbc.ca so we're up in canada Mm -hmm. canadian land michael scott says (laughs) Uh, from the entertainment section of the sea and other black operas are changing the face of classical music Mm. jackson weaver writes production is the first ever large-scale opera in canada with an all-black performance ensemble. The first ever, wow. And what I wanted to highlight from the article is Kanika Ambrose says, I wanted black folks to see themselves in opera and have a space to enjoy opera. And I hope that that happens tonight, which of course, obviously it did. Uh, But basically she's going in saying, we are going for the black crowd. Mm -hmm. If white people want to come, fine. Yeah, y'all are are welcome. But they are aiming this specifically at um, black folks for representation, telling black stories from a positive perspective. And uh, not only are the people on stage 
all black, but everybody doing the sets, doing the sound, doing the uh, costumes. It's an all black production. Let's break down that specific approach for a minute. That they're going for the- Going specifically for an audience that you want to have. We've talked about this in many ways. I think you were uh, saying uh, maybe a couple seasons ago, there's some brewers on your end of town who say, we brew for the Hmong people. Yes. And and just period. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think about- You can buy it. Yeah, of course. Oh, listen. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, capitalism works. Right. Um, I remember when I was working at uh, a bar down in Knoxville, shout out to the Stillhouse Tavern, not the first or last uh, job I was fired from, but mm. <laughs> uh, the the owner of the bar, you know, there was a jukebox, one of those digital jukeboxes in there. And I would, you know, every now and again ask him, well, why isn't such and such there? Why isn't such and such? So usually he just wasn't thinking about it and what added. Well, one time I asked him about the Fugees. I said, uh, Lauren Hill and the Fugees and them are not on the jukebox. Well, what, what's going on? And he said, well, I don't want them on the jukebox because they said they don't make music for white people. Okay. While that approach for black folks uh, you know, as as we're reading about in this article, can be very affirming. What do we do <laughs> with the folks who are not centered and getting them to understand why this is not a bad thing? What is your response to the white person that says, "Well, this opera of the sea, they they don't care about me. They didn't have me in mind, so why would I go and bother with it?" What what what? How do you engage that person in dialogue? That doesn't mean you can't go. Hmm. <laughs> what? What? Because everything else was done for the white experience. Okay, I, I just, I just so, needed, I just needed to be said by you. I, see, this is the thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm rattling around in my house by myself. All of a sudden, I get in front of people and I get strappy. All of a sudden, here. <laughs> so I'll bring, I'll, I'll tone it down a little bit. No, but no, no. No, that's what, what I would say is, it, 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 so what? Yeah. There's, uh, was, was Steel Magnolias written for you? No. And what's the movie that y'all want me to love so much? Oh, um, for, oh well, Brother, Where Art yes. Thou? <laughs> that was not written for me. Damn. So, goodness gracious. But you Black, watched it. But, but, yeah, I watched it. It's fine. I love seeing that man getting socked in the face in that, uh, toward the end of the movie from, with the underarm. But anyway. In front of the wolves, worse. Um, some stuff is okay to center a specific audience for the sake of getting that specific audience. And, you know, it's, it's a normal sort of thought to me, an obvious answer, but I think it's always important to revisit that conversation, why it's important for certain communities to feel centered because there's never a community not being centered. Right. We're, I, we, we've gotten into this thing with classical music, thinking of things as neutral or being for everybody, but really there is a specific audience and a specific demographic in mind every time these concerts filled with Beethoven and Ravel and Brahms and you know, you you name the characters are, are put on stage. There is an audience being centered, and what uh, and what this playwright Kanika Ambrose does is, you know, centering somebody else who she wants to center. But they're talking about also, uh, you know, they're seeing that the Metropolitan Opera had success with Fire Shut Up in My Bones, yeah. so that, and and they immediately engaged uh, Terrence Blanchard to do another one. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're talking about debuting. Uh, a Portia cryptic, which is about Portia White. Do you know of Portia White? Mm-mm. Okay, so here's a here's a, a name to go discover: uh, a legendary Nova Scotia opera contralto and the first Black Canadian concert singer to achieve to achieve international fame. So basically, if somebody said, "Okay, this isn't for me. Why should I go and look at it?" I would try to get them to say why they aren't adventurous, mm. why they aren't 
interested in hearing something outside of their comfort zone or something new. And then maybe they'll go, well, I, I'm, uh-uh, I'm adventurous. I'll go, yeah. I'll go yeah. see it. Anyway, scroll down a little bit here more in the article where it says black representation in classical music. Um, l- leave it to a Canadian paper to lay it out. While much of American popular culture music has its roots in black community and culture, classical music, and specifically opera, has appeared less welcoming to their influence and participation. Mm-hmm. They basically just said, your music is black, and yet you don't want to say that. Mm-hmm. Is that wrong? <laughs> what I wanted to speak to was the subject matter of the opera. So I'm, I'm reading here. The story she developed focuses on enslaved Africans who fell or were tossed from ships during the Middle Passage. So it gets into the fantasy. It looks like it's about this, you know, under the sea sort of people. But Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting that even in the most fantastical of contexts, slavery is a part of the story. And this is no shade to any of the uh, folks involved, but I just think it's important to note that through that centering, you know, there always seems to have to be that pain. And I think every now and again, Mm. we just deserve to have, and we'll, we'll get into it in the next accidental, but deserve to have an opera that's absent of that. With that being said, that fantastical, I think, is a great way to sort of pull a different sort of joy or Maybe. different sort of experience. Yeah. I know we typically love the, uh, as a people, the sort of gritty, sort of grimy sort of thing. So, for example, the more recent iterations of the Batman films, as opposed to the older the sort camp. of, you know, uh, campy ones. But that fantasy is just re- really important sometimes. I mean, how is it easy? For you to, or is there a circumstance under which you can really get into the fantastical, the the magical, the all all of those sorts of stories, as opposed to the Sopranos yeah. and that sort of thing? Sure, especially when it comes to theater, you're going to walk in there thinking, you know, the 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 willing suspension of disbelief, right? You know, right. you're going to go in and you're and you're going to accept that something exists in this world in order to make the story work. Mm-hmm. So, not knowing how she treated the enslaved people's part, it's hard to say, right? But from the costumes and the lighting, you can see that- Yeah, it looks fun. Right, it does look fun. So uh, maybe, even though she said we're writing this so that black folks can come to the opera and see themselves represented Mm -hmm. and and their stories, um, maybe she's putting out crumbs for the black people to, not the black people, but for white listeners to- take their first steps into uh, dealing with the the history of enslaved people. Yeah, and maybe that's an important thing for non-Black audiences to understand that even through the most fantastical sort of story, you can't forget about the history. You can't mm. for, forget about what happened and what isn't fantastical. So, yeah. you know, that that that's that's something there. One thing that I thought w- uh, was interesting that I wanted to point out before we left this accidental, this Chevalier film. I was going to ask you. Is mentioned. There's a, there's some folks who have been my in, in my inbox who have seen advanced screenings and and things for it. You know, just like I said with the film Tar. Yep. It's hard for me to want to spend all that money to go to the movie theater to see that if there are other options. I'm just not running to see this Chevalier film. And I, I guess for the sake of you know being a professional in a certain corner of this thing called classical music, it'll be responsible for me to see the mm-hmm. film. But I'm, I'm not just rushing to see it, are you? I'm interested to see it because I wanna see how they're going to treat it. Mm. 
I want I want to see how much of this is going to be the formulaic. Um, let's sell a movie with a, you know, this this could just be an opera. I mean, sure. you know, a soap opera. Yeah, um, uh, something that you see in afternoon television. Uh, so I'm interested to see just how they're going to treat it, and whether or not it's going to be something uh, boilerplate from yeah uh, another movie that was from the same era. Or the, or the writers doing a lot of listening to classical radio. So you're going to go see the film and you're going to hear one of your breaks in the film. You know, you're going <laughs> to be like Soldier Boy. <laughs> bar for bar. <laughs> my, I, I guess the, the thing I need to get over when it comes to the Chevalier film is that subtitle, The Untold Story. Oh my gosh, that gripes me a little bit because we have talked about the Chevalier so much. At this point, it seems trite or even just overdone to talk about the Chevalier as this black composer and history and that, you know, not that right. it's insignificant, but there's at this point for us fo folks in, in the music, in the classical music biz, there are so many more interesting stories to tell at this point than Chevalier, but they sitting up here talking about the untold story, like they're bringing it to the front. It's, Ooh, yeah. It's hard to I need think a of, chance. It's, it's hard to think of people <laughs> at different levels because, you know, you said your friend Caesar tells you people don't know who Florence Price is. That's true. So maybe folks have and never so, heard of Chevalier. And I can tell you that when I first started in classical, uh, before moving to the Twin Cities, I might have played the Bologna Violin Concerto once mm. on the air. So, no, the people aren't talking about it. So, again, I'm interested to see maybe they have part of the story that i haven't heard yet maybe there is maybe part of so. the untold story and I, I, and I do appreciate that in the trailer i saw one tv commercial trailer they do highlight the swordsmanship and the violin playing i mm -hmm. think it's just important to uh platform the chevalier as an interesting historical figure not just a composer just a, a musician but all of the things he did and, and it seems like it's there and Look, I'm not rushing to spend twenty dollars to go see that film if something else is is at the theater. Right, but I'll I'll, I'll it, it'll get streamed or, or or something. It says here that uh, at some point that um, his his music. I always thought that his music was popular in his own time, mm. and it said here in the article something along the lines like even even though. Uh, so much of his music was lost and suppressed during that era of the French of French history. Mm -hmm. uh, is that accurate? I, I guess we'll see. And then is that part of the untold and, story? And of course, the musicologists will write the the think pieces. Uh, mm. See that. See, we'll I'll I'll be interested to read those mm. and to see what those folks are talking about. But but anyway, um, but I'm ahead. just you know I was just going to say um, uh, hats off. I'm glad to see uh, an all black production of opera happening. Yeah. And the fact that they're uh, that it was successful for them, and they're looking to do uh, another uh, a Portia cryptic about Portia White. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna go and look up Portia White now. Yeah, yeah, and shout out to uh, all of the folks involved, to Kanika Ambrose for uh, heading this thing. Love to see it. Love to see it. We're gonna transition to our next accidental. There is a, a musical trailer uh, for this opera that you can uh, find online. So we'll listen to a little bit of that as we get to our next accidental. <laughs>
Have you spent much time in Canada at all? Have you ever found yourself up there? Went to Lethbridge, Lethbridge, Ontario, uh, uh, Lethbridge, Alberta. Oh, you were in. Oh, you were in the in the outback, so just, to speak, just up above <laughs> Glacier National Park. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. When I played with the Detroit Symphony, I spent all sorts of time in uh, Windsor, is the town on mm. the uh, other side over there. One time, I had to drive from Detroit to Rochester because my flight was canceled, and I had an audition the next day. So my only choice was to rent a car, and I drove the the Canada way. And you know, they they have the price that you pay for speeding on the speed limit sign. Did you know that? I didn't. So like so they'll have the speed limit at least back in those days and they'll it'll be 5 over and then a price, 10 over a price, more than 20 over a price. So they're like you are going to pay. So let's go ahead and right let you jail. know up front. Right. Right to you. <laughs> anyway, shout out to everyone up there. Can't wait to uh see more happening in the uh in the world of decolonizing classical music up in Canada. All right, well, uh we're going to go to our next accidental uh, a piece from Billboard that I'm going to give a sharp. We have a, a double sharp week this week. Uh, the headline, a lost operatic masterpiece written by white men for an all black cast <laughs> was found and restored. Can it be produced without controversy? Mm. Let's, let's just stop right there. We, we have the story in the title. A new opera, well, it's not a new opera, but a, an opera that has recently been found was written by white people and is for an all black cast. That, that's going to be simple. There's, there's going to be nothing to discuss. It's going to be put on stage not and today, everything's no. going to be fine. <laughs> 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 what, what, do you, uh, what do you think of the idea historically versus now of white folks writing black stories? So we talk about Porgy and Bess all the time, for example. That's, that's just one. We have another one here. Is it right? Is it well? I, I don't want to say right or wrong, but is it um, is it worth the battle? I think is really the question. Is it worth the controversy? Right yeah. Is it is it worth it to fight for a piece of music like this, considering the ingredients that we're talking about? Judging by what we know of that era, mm-hmm. what can we divine from how black people might be treated? That's my first question: yeah. Is how were the characters treated? Because nobody is saying that you can't write for a, a person that's a different color than you. Right. But you have to be sensitive to that culture. Mm-hmm. So that would be my first question is how were the characters treated? And I think the tricky part of it is that we could ask a million questions, but we don't have the scripts. We mm-hmm. don't we don't have the libretto. We just have to go with what we can know. And one of the things that we know is that Angel Blue is a part of of this production. Let me read a little bit here. It says black soprano Angel Blue, one of opera's greatest stars, wants to debut the lead role. Uh, quote, I haven't heard the whole score, but what I have heard is stunning. That's from Angel Blue. So for folks who don't know, one of uh, Angel Blue's more notable moments in the field was resigning from Opera de uh, Verona because mm-hmm. another one of their productions was utilizing blackface. And she was like, no, you know, that is a dream gig for a lot of people, but she walked right away from it. So again, you know, as I was saying before, there's so much about it that we don't know, but for someone like Angel Blue, who has proven herself, right. you know, to to equity, if she's interested in this, now I'm, I'm interested I'm listening. in it. I'm listening. Um, they bring up a point in here about uh, making changes, like if there were, if there was a problem and you try to change it, how do you feel about changing something away from the composer's intent? Mm. 
Do you change a note? Do you not change a note? Do you make cuts just to make it to shoehorn it in? I think mm-hmm. I know. I think I know what you're going to say. I mean, it it really depends. I'm I'm hopeful for this opera because again, it's called a blues opera instead of being about uh you know downtrodden black folks and that sort of thing. It's supposed to be about uh, a so-called upper class black society, and you know it's it's described in here as uh, black people drinking champagne and doing all of those things. So mm-hmm. it's definitely a different view, maybe a more celebratory view, certainly a less oppressive view. And I think we need more of that. Just like the uh, last opera we were just talking about, of the sea, we we need more of that joy. And that's uh, one of the things that is outlined here i'm actually quoted See, throughout <laughs> a, a couple this, times this article yeah I'll, I'll, I'll just read here it says um uh for these reasons even garrett mcqueen the noticed classical agitator uh, and co-host of the triloquy podcast seems favorably disposed disposed to blues opera quote this is me speaking we could use more operas that don't tell the same old story of the downtrodden abused oppressed black person there's more to the black experience than pain for me i think that's just one of the big things if we can get past putting black folks on stage in chains and tattered clothing and slavery and all of that that has to be step one and if we if we're getting past that which this opera seems to get past you can you can at least sign me up to be interested. I'm a little okay. I'm a little bit surprised because I thought that you would say something about all of the black composers writing black stories that yeah. are alive right now. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't we put those on stage? Yeah, and we do. We 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 do need to do that. And if this is how black representation is going to be thrown into the opera house, so be it because they're not playing the new operas, you know, they're mm-hmm. not doing the new masterpieces. So if they need to find something historical and that's the way we got to go, that's the way we got to go. That's this is the point that I wanted to bring up that stuck out for me in the article. Nevertheless, opera companies delight in presenting works of living composers. Christina Shepelman, general director of Seattle Opera, says it would constitute a failure if in 50 years opera companies were still largely museums of the 19th century canon. Period. She says, quote, we have to do new pieces, believe in them and repeat them. I believe that. Repeat mm-hmm. them. Yep. She says, even pieces that right now would not fill the house. Yeah. How do you feel about that? If I said that, people would be on my ass I hear you. immediately. I hear you. I think- as you have always said, as we say week after week, that track record has to be built. And those new spaces aren't going to automatically just be filled up. I mean, it's, it's, it's just a, a matter of fact. You, you make me think about when we started this show back in 2019, I think that was. Mm-hmm. Um, I acknowledge that it would be a new thing in the ecosystem. It would take some time for the uh, for for it to gain some some traction and and all those sorts of things and we're doing just fine now we have all of you all of y'all listening but that was a new thing and we had to build towards that mm-hmm. and I think arts mm-hmm. institutions in general when they talk about new projects and new approaches just need to accept that it's going to take some time it's going to take some time and you have to realize that you are you may well put up shows that do not sell out. Mm-hmm. And that is where you're being tested. <laughs> How long are you going to um, work in uh, w- work in bringing these new works to to the stage? Uh, you you got to figure out 
how to make them sell out. And let me quote myself again here. Uh, I, I say in this article, any way you slice it, there's going to be pushback. Mm -hmm. So not only are you going right. to have people talking about, oh, well, you know, we need more of the Verity and X, Y, and Z. You're going to have black people who, like me, who, well, I'm not saying I feel this way, but you're going to have black folks who will automatically have an issue of any black story being told by someone who is not black. Right. That's just unavoidable. So if not wanting pushback is, you know, is is the goal, then you you can never put this sort of stuff on stage. But I'm of the belief that again, as I just said, they're not playing the new stuff. So if my choice is more magic flute, more uh all all of the typical opera stuff or mm -hmm. this historic thing about black folks written by white people, if those are the choices, I'm just gonna choose the blues opera mm -hmm. and I got it. we can we can still continue to move forward but that pushback is going to be there you're always going to have folks on every side of the conversation telling you why this should not be put on the stage and if you're afraid of that you just you, you need to go get another type of job because that's that's what this is entailing at this point in history yeah you have to show your commitment that's what i got out of that yeah that the um that particular paragraph is that your commitment to it once you do it just do like I do. Just keep your head up and keep on walking. Yeah. <laughs> the writer was kind enough to uh, let me have the the final word here. Oh, um, you didn't just take it? I, I, I say, I would hope that top level decisions are made not only by people who are black, but people with some sort of historical, academic and cultural connection to the communities that this music is supposed to to be about. If that's not happening, I think there's going to be more room for more people to have an issue with this. Mm -hmm. So, and and this is something that I was putting forward on social media as well. Okay, we have a black cast. It needs to have a black director, period, mm -hmm. but it also needs to have people who understand the setting and have some sort of a real history and connection to where to 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 what this story is highlighting even if if it is positive mm. let's say there is a uh, a new opera about let's say uh you know black people's experiences in puerto rico i should not be the director of that and i'm black you know mm -hmm. both both of sure. those things are true sure. and i think that we need in the in the arts field to understand that the diversity of blackness has to be utilized to tell black stories it's not okay just to have any black up on stage or up directing or whatever there has to be that cultural connection so that it's more than just oh we got black folks on stage but a black story is being told authentically through the eyes of someone who has some sort of stake in how this community, how this part of the country, about how this part of history is being portrayed. I hope that's being paid attention to as well. It's one thing to talk about, oh, an opera by white men, about black people, can we do it? But even in its realization, we have to make sure that we're being as authentic as we can be, even to the point of making sure that the black person that you do choose to run this thing actually has proximity to the, the stories that are being told. Before we leave this article, this accidental one question, just satisfy my curiosity. They talk about reconstructing this piece. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have all of it, where do you turn? I mean, what, what, when you go to reconstruct some, we talk about this on the air when we're doing radio shows all the time, that mm -hmm. this was cobbled together from, yeah. from what? <laughs> usually if, it, if it's lost, where do you go? Usually from the reduction, the piano, what we call the piano reduction. So okay. any, 
orchestral work can be reduced to a piano part mm -hmm. that you can play just to know what it sounds like. For example, the Florence Price Piano Concerto that mm -hmm. everyone is playing these days, the actual score to that was only recently discovered. So the recordings are actually an orchestration of a piano reduction mm. that people found. The, uh, that Shostakovich waltz we were talking about last week, that was discovered in its piano reduction form. Interesting. So someone had to uh, do the arranging, and, and that's the, the, the case here. Mm. Maybe there's a random oboe or violin part that they find that can mm. help them sort of know where together. things go. Mm. But... Uh, largely, at least it sounds like here, they found the piano reduction and now they're trying to realize it for 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 orchestra. So you got to make sure you have some, you know, black folks in the room that know when to give this line to a saxophone instead of just throwing it to the bassoon or the, the English horn. You know, it's about having that ear for the culture and the aesthetic that is supposed to be uh, yeah, celebrated. That opens, it's a lot of work. That's a, a lot of whole work. new layer, man. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But anyway, huge shout out to everyone at Billboard and the uh, writer of the article here, Fred Dannon. It was a, a, a pleasure to speak with you. We'll see what happens with this opera. Don't have me eating my words. Don't have me eating my words, okay? I'm supporting it now, <laughs> and hopefully it'll be a success. To get us to the uh, second movement, I wanted to feature Angel Blue. One of my favorite things about Angel Blue is that she is such a versatile musician. I saw her live when I went to go see Fire Shut Up In My Bones, but each one of her solos, you could just tell that she has some of that soul, some of that church. Like It's not only opera mm. that she can sing, so mm -hmm. I'm going to highlight some of that here. This is Angel Blue featured in an arrangement of He's Been Faithful, a very blessed gospel tune to get us into our second movement this week. Every tear, there's a God who's been faithful to me. When my strength was all gone, when my heart had no And, you know, listening to her on the non-opera side, I almost want to say through the way that she's singing there, you can tell that opera is something that she can do. Mm. She It's just, just really the full package and mm. such a blessing to have folks like Angel Blue in the field willing to bother with any of this opera That's music. Right. You know, they, they're lucky to have her. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, shout out to uh, Angel Blue. And we're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to share some music that we've been spending some time with. I'm going to get us started. You know, in the introduction, we were talking about this April snow. It, it sort of happens. We can say, oh, this weird April snow or whatever, but snow in April has <laughs> been the norm since me and Dill say, have lived here. <laughs> sometimes it snows in April. Most times it snows in April. But I, I remember the uh, the second time I came to St. Paul, not the very first, but the second time was actually to do my audition for NPR. It was like April 15th or 
or or something. It was late in the month because I had a uh, a pre-recorded cannabis themed show about to run at my first radio station. So it. so it wasn't like April first. It was into the month, and my flight was canceled getting home because of a blizzard, because of a snowstorm. So it happens. Um, but you know, we still like to act like it's it's weird and all of that stuff. And once upon a time, it seems like Prince did exactly that by putting out a tune called "Sometimes It Snows in April." You know, my hairstylist, uh, shout out to Jenny, is a Prince stan, if there ever was a stan. So she has all sorts of stories, any of the trivia. Like I, w- once I uh, asked her, well, I wonder if Beyonce ever performed at Prince. And she was able to tell me the performance date. The, the, anyway, Damn. she knows. So everything that I know about Prince, really, I've learned through her and through just living here in Minnesota, where Prince is very much revered. We've talked about it before. I grew up in a Michael Jackson household. That is no shade to Prince. I'm just, I have to catch up on my education. Mm-hmm. Um, aside from living in Minnesota for all these years, was Prince someone who was in your periphery? Did he make it on your DJ sets when you were uh, doing parties and that sort of thing? Let's Go Crazy was every wedding reception. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, Usually Purple Rain at high school dances, sure. you know, near the end of the night, you started wrapping things up with that. Of course, Prince was part of the fabric. Yeah. And when I went and um, and visited uh, Paisley Park, you know, I could really see, even though he, of course, he wasn't there, he was no longer living. But when you see his studios and the way they're set up and he would have different sound booths for every instrument and sure. then sometimes just play a whole track by himself, just instrument by instrument. Yeah. He really was a musical genius, both as an instrumentalist and a performer and a songwriter. He wrote many songs that other people you know, uh, gain notoriety from. Anyway, all of that to honor uh, Prince and uh, and a tune of his called Sometimes It Snows in April. The original, of course, is is brilliant. But I got into some instrumental arrangements that people were making of it because the, the uh, original tune itself just has a tenderness about it. And an arrangement that I found that I really appreciated that I wanted to share uh, is by Shana E. and Jazz Mafia. Starts really softly with those, you know, pizzicato uh sounds sort of like those snowdrops just kind of beginning to fall sort of like quaintly like oh look it's it's snowing and it's april but when you get deeper into the song at least for me it reminds me of just hope and hanging on you know and Mm. even though we're still getting that snow Mm. the spring is coming the summer is coming you just gotta hold off for a little longer that's what i think about when i listen to this about the music if that makes sense there's something still about the music you know me i'm in my statesman era i'm I'm always trying to uh pull out the positive you know pull make turn the poison into medicine Mm -hmm. once upon a time i really would have been 
bent out of shape about April snow and the fact that it is April and I'm out here shoveling, breaking my back, you know, pig picking at ice. But this year it's not so much. It's like, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be so hot. We're going to be complaining how hot and muggy it is. A lot of people, maybe not you, but uh, (laughs) when we get there. (laughs) If the past Minnesota weather is any clue, we'll be complaining about the heat in about six weeks. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) So to me, just listening to that tune is just a great reminder of not only to be patient for that literal spring, that literal summer, but even the difficulties of life. It's going to get better. Winter mm. always turns to spring, as the Buddhist doctrines say. And that that tune there just reminds me of that. Just persevere a little longer. Just hold on a little longer. It's coming. So shout out to the late, great Prince. Thank you for creating such an incredible tune. And thank you to Shana E. and Jazz Mafia for offering a really beautiful arrangement of it. Sometimes it snows in April, in Minnesota especially. I have to uh, give a big rest in peace. We lost a big one. Yeah. Um, Ryuichi Sakamoto oh, yeah. passed away from the effects of cancer at 71 years old. Uh, the man was uh, the godfather of techno music hmm. from back in the 70s. Actually, the first album that I heard by his group, Yellow Magic Orchestra, was Technodon, which was their last offering as a band. So, if that gets, and that was their ninth album. So if that gives you an idea of how far back they go, but you listen to that and it's really like Atari music, sure. you know, it's a, all electronic based and very square, Yeah. but you can hear Sakamoto growing and changing with the technology and, you know, making the drum programs work a little bit better or the effects a little bit better uh, with each album, with each iteration of himself, mm-hmm. um, won multiple awards, um, uh, Grammys, BAFTAs, Golden Globes um, for his film scores. Yeah, uh, you know the the Last Emperor is a huge one. Uh, the Sheltering Sky, most recently the Revenant. But um, man, people always point to Merry Christmas, Mister Lawrence, as you know. I was going to bring that track in, but I wanted to bring in the track that solidified my love for him as an auteur, as somebody who puts together like the full package, mm-hmm. because this release. Heartbeat is the title, and I'm, I want to go to the, the title track, but it's really international. You get French rap, Indian rap, there's Japanese, there's English, there's uh, all sorts of different moods and genres represented. And I wanted to highlight Heartbeat with David Sylvian providing the vocals in this, and I wanted to bring in the, bring in the point where the heartbeat really picks up here. The blood sail leaves tonight Fated in its blindness And it won't be long before help is at hand And the darkness sleeps Cushioning the heartbeat So what does it mean to you that Ryuichi Sakamoto was someone who could very easily be heard on, let's say, an adult contemporary radio station, but is not a name that's foreign in the world of so-called classical either? That versatility as a as a music creator, is, is that one of the things, in your opinion, that really makes him a, 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 a 
a demigod right. of music. Yeah, that is definitely the superpower is to be able to slip into whatever genre uh, is required in the moment and make something incredible. Mm -hmm. Because uh, I think it was in our second season of Triloquy that we talked about Sakamoto was actually approaching restaurants in Japan and in Tokyo and saying, I want to curate the music that you play in here. You know, to, he, he wanted to try to set the vibe in his favorite restaurants. Yeah. You know, uh, think about what could happen if everybody, if, you know, various businesses had uh, a pro like Sakamoto curating the music that you're going to play in your show. Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. I would love that. Yeah. But um, he worked right up to the end. You know, he uh, won for a film score in China just back in 2022. So he was working all the way through his cancer diagnosis and treatment and eventually succumbed to it. Well, rest in power to Ryuichi Sakamoto. We lost a good one, but we have all that music to remember him by, the, his his gift to us. So always uh, important to, to to celebrate those. Well, we're going to um, move into the third movement here. Uh, I'm very excited and honored this week to feature composer Tommy Doherty. We talk a lot here on Triloquy about new music and supporting living composers. Well, Tommy is one of those folks. Just a little bit about him. Composer and violinist Tommy Doherty is a native of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and is a composer of orchestral chamber and solo works. In 2023, the Orchestra of St. Luke's will premiere a new work by Tommy through his participation in the De Catano Competition Institute, where he's working with uh, closely with mentor composer Anna Klein. Tommy was also read by the American Composers Orchestra uh, last June. We featured some of his music here on Triloquy before. Remember, we did uh, feature that tune, uh, Gross Misconduct, mm -hmm, sort of like mm -hmm. a concerto grosso, but uh, in a contemporary way. So uh, Tommy and I sort of talk about the biz, uh, who he sees as being responsible for, for change and how we can uh, really grow the institution and the tradition of classical music by turning our attention to living, breathing composers. So we're going to get into uh, my conversation with him by sampling a bit of the music that was actually my musical introduction to Tommy. This is a really phenomenal work of his called Restrung. Hope y'all enjoy this and hope y'all enjoy our conversation. the things I've been thinking about a lot, and I, I've heard you guys talk about it on here. Um, I sometimes think that orchestras are, are treating their audiences like children mm. um, in that, you know, 
oh, they can't handle this. They're not going to like that. There's a lot of, of, of um, spoon feeding and, and, you know, sugar coating going on that I, I just don't, I don't really buy. I, I think that we sometimes assume that audiences are dumber than they really are. I don't, I don't think that they're dumb. Um, but yes, I, I do think that, you know, uh, new music could equal new, new audiences, or it could just um, enrich the experience of, of current, current audience members. Um, I wonder how you engage that from your personal composition standpoint when you're working on a new piece of music are you actively thinking oh well is this too crunchy for an audience or are you thinking oh maybe i can expand or, or challenge them more because my idea is you should be able to just create what you create at the same time especially when it comes to orchestral works it does have to be positioned for audiences after all yeah i mean I, I trust my ears and I, I compose as the listener. Um, I write what I want to hear um, in, in, you know, in the context of, of, of the proportions of the piece and the pacing and everything, like I'm trusting my ear. They're the same ears that enjoy Brahms and that enjoy Mahler and that enjoy, you know, the entire um, incredibly expansive spectrum of, of new music. Um, and so that's that's all that I can do, really, um, as a composer. The, the other thing um, that I think you know we can talk more about this, uh, but it really involves improving the ratio of of living composers that are that that are programmed. I, I have this um, maybe peculiar um, obsessive habit of like logging <laughs> into you know uh, symphony subscription seasons and just doing the, my own stats on them. You know, like how many living composers are you actually featuring? Uh, the most recent one that I did of uh, one of my favorite orchestras, um, 10 out of 61, 10 out of 61 composers, um, living composers featured in a season. Um, I, I'll, I'll use a, a Game of Thrones analogy, um, you know, <laughs> in the same sense that I feel like, you know, all the characters are squabbling about, you know, very, very real things. Um, at the end of the day, uh, it, it's the dead that's 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 coming for them, right? And for composers, that's our reality. You know, we can fight over who gets this opportunity, who gets that opportunity. It doesn't matter in the end because, you know, if a major orchestra is only featuring ten living composers in a season, you know, does Beethoven need to pay bills? <laughs> <laughs> Neither does his estate. You know the. <laughs> <laughs> the, the comparison that I always make, you know, speaking of Beethoven, is that when Beethoven 5 was premiered, it was, in essence, a new music concert. Two of Beethoven's new works, I believe, and, and the mu music music historians will fact check me, but I believe there may have been some Paganini variations or something on, on that uh, concert back in 18-oh-whatever. But anyway, the point is that the tradition for orchestral spaces, if we really want to contextualize it that way, is new music. My radical belief is that orchestras should be performing 100% music by living composers, you know, with maybe the occasional Beethoven symphony mixed in somewhere in the season. You mentioned 10 out of 61. What would be for you an acceptable ratio? I mean, again, we're, we're just going to be considered a bunch of radicals, Garrett. Um, but <laughs> Let's get it to 
I see, I see no problem with that. And, and, and here's the reason why is, you know, if, if I were in charge of artistic planning for, you know, the, the Tommy Doherty symphony orchestra, I mean, there, there are different, there are different types of composers that you can go after. First of all, they're, they're the established composers that, that may as well be dead for how much they're programmed. John Adams, Sariaho, Gubaitalina, Addis, Anna Klein, Jennifer Higdon, Esapekka Salonen, like these are, these are, you know, the, the, the great composers of today. Like you should be hearing them multiple times in a season. Your audience should. Um, and then let's go with like, you know, composers who have close relationships with the music director, right? I mean, like you want your music director to want to be doing this music. Um, I assume that not every music director is programmed to only be interested in Bach through Shostakovich. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let's talk about like the relevance to, um, you know, the, the, the area, like what, what makes your symphony unique? It's the people who live in your community, right? So people who are from that, that city, um, people who live there currently and are working at, you know, who, who are writing in your community, like welcome them into the space. Uh, one, one thing that I've, I've, be, I've become a little obsessive of thinking about is, you know, these, these phenomenal orchestras go on their their big European or Asian tours mm. um, and, and I've often heard um, you know this term as we're ambassadors to the city like we're ambassadors to Pittsburgh or Philadelphia or Cleveland what in terms of repertoire are you bringing across the sea what 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 from I, I'm picking on Pittsburgh because I'm from there uh, <laughs> what 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 are you bringing over there that says like this is Pittsburgh mm-hmm. are you playing music written by Pittsburgh composers? Are you playing music written by American composers? You know, so so then it becomes a question of, you know, whose orchestra really is this? Right. Right. Um, And and then the final, you know, (laughs) your audience can decide if I'm just completely self-serving here, but the final uh, uh, category of, of composers is, you know, this title of, emerging composers right Right. like who's who's coming out of the music schools um which you know we we could go into discussing why i don't like that term um but 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 already like there's there's that that's just four 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 different ways of like bringing living breathing creative people into the space you're mentioning that phrase emerging composers in conjunction with listing off all of those other living composers that uh, you mentioned, Addis, you know, all John Adams, all, all of those folks. The question that it brings to mind for me is sort of the relationship between living composers generally and those few composers who have been normalized in those orchestral spaces, not to pit you against, you know, John Adams, for example, but I wonder what your thoughts are on the living composers who get lots of performances versus composers who are just really fighting for that first or even second performance. Well, you know, I mean, it's not their fault. And I, I also, I want, I want, I want that to be, you know, an end goal for all of us, right. Of getting to that point. My fear, though, is that 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 is a that is the result of of lazy and uninspired programming. I guess is just like you know, you hear Mason Bates played everywhere because people know what they're going to get, um, and he's established. And I mean, the same for for, for all these composers. Um, 
and it's just checking off a box, right? Um, so I, I think that comes back to like, what makes each individual orchestra unique? Yeah. You know, like like really focus on who's in your community and 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 who's a Seattle composer, who's a Cleveland composer, and and really embrace that, I think, right? Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal way to, you know, to really contextualize that something that I've been exploring, you know, in, in my conversations with a lot of people, you know, what is your unique offering to the world of orchestral music as the New York Philharmonic or or whatever. But I, I, I do want to back up again, back to that idea of the tradition that has already been put in place that we oftentimes forget about. So, you know, I think we often think of a a Beethoven as someone who spent all of his time just sitting at his desk writing music. But the reality is that many of the composers that we venerate did other things. You know, Rimsky-Korsakov was a military general in addition to being a composer. What does that conversation look like for you today? The expectation, or I should say the aspiration to make a living purely composing next to the long-lived tradition of composers needing to do other things than just write music? Yeah, I think that, you know, while, while there is truth to that, we have to think like we're in the 21st century and and the problem for me is that this field that is based off of creativity and innovation refuses to innovate, right? And, and I think we're at the point now where like, I see no reason why composers cannot just have a career being a composer. I mean, I, and I think it starts, I think it starts in academia. I think it starts um, in our own musical culture of like, I go, I went to school as a composer, um, a degree in composition. That's my craft. I worked alongside other people who practice their crafts, com uh, performers, singers, uh, conductors, they're all able to have careers mm -hmm. doing that thing. I, I, I think this is a bit of a myth and, and, I, and I really want to push that like, you know, basically I'll say it this way. In, in our musical animal kingdom, Garrett, um, I, it comes as no surprise that, I, that composers are at the bottom of the food chain, right? Fortunately, yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I don't think that that needs to be the case. I think that we need to push to be seen as equal collaborators. Um, and, and, you know, in the perfect collaborative setting, you have a composer or a creator, right, who, who made the thing and would hopefully be involved also in, um, you know, the rehearsing, the, the actual building of it with the performers. Um, I think in, in music school, we need to, we need to get rid of a lot of these classroom things and really just have the space for this, this interaction um, to be, to be worked through, um, to be practiced. Um, because at the end of the day, I think that's what, you know, makes what we do interesting. I think that, 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 you know, I, I, I always find myself comparing, um, music to politics or food. And, and I really think that this is like, you know, the, 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 the experiment of democracy, right. Of like, there's, there's these social dy dynamics and these power dynamics and like, and like, how can how can we continue to perfect this process of of collaborating? And you know, like you were saying, at one point that did heavily involve the composer. Today, I don't think that it it necessarily does. I think that the conductor has has dominated 
that role of being, you know, the one that is, that is, I, I feel like it, sometimes I can't even say interacting, but like informing, you know, performers what to do. Um, I really want to see the balance return of composer, conductor, sure, musicians. Um, and, 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 and I think that that, that's the most interesting and the most beneficial way of collaborating. You give conductors more room than I tend to. So good for you. <laughs> oh, I'm trying to behave myself, Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, but, but before we uh, move on from this idea of being the composer and, you know, I, I asked you this question when we met uh, about a year ago, I'll, I'll ask you again so that uh, the audience can hear your response to it. For me, when I listen to much of your music from the orchestral all the way down to the chamber music, I hear virtuosity on the violin as experienced through you. You know, I listen to your music and I say, oh, Tommy must be an incredible violinist. Uh, is that something that you actively engage? Am I just pulling out of thin air and, and hearing that? I, I wonder how uh, the, the level to which you play has an impact on your compositions. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think this kind of goes back to like, what we're saying of like, you know, what musicians used to be. I, I, I think despite the fact that many times throughout my academic career, I tried to put the violin away because I, I wanted to double down and say, I am a composer. Like, this is what I want to do. I need to focus on this. Mm -hmm. Like I said, you know, quickly you realize the violin pays the bills, but even more interestingly than that, um, like, I think at the end of the day, like the happiest way of being a musician is being is doing it all, right? I wanna see more performers compose. I wanna see more composers perform. Um, I think that that is just in this universe, like the the the, the best chance of, of, of creative fulfillment is, is, is experiencing it all, creative and artistic fulfillment. Um, but yes, like as a, as a violinist, um, I've especially been interested in improvising i see improvising as kind of like this musical meditation of like all right i'm i'm just closing myself in a room i'm clearing my head whatever comes out comes out i'm not going to judge it um and then i'm just going to analyze it and and see if there's anything anything interesting anything that could turn into something um and so in that sense yes like performing has become very informative to, to my creative process and to composing. So how do you engage writing for the trombone or maybe the bassoon, other instruments that you don't have the same amount of experience with? Yeah, I, so I, I think, um, you know, despite the fact that I, I've never really had my hands on either of those instruments, I at least have a sense of how to ask questions about it and, and how to put myself in their position. But, uh, you know, the most obvious answer is you find your trombone friend, you find your bassoon friend, you buy them coffee and say, all right, show me everything you got. <laughs> uh, uh, but, but, but I, I, I do think that, that that curiosity stems from my own experience of actually doing it myself on an instrument. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can talk all day about the challenges of getting the first performance by a professional orchestra, even the second or third getting works performed. But the challenges, from my perspective, go far beyond just what orchestras are programming. I wonder if you can speak to some of the challenges that the musician or the everyday person may not be aware of for composers. 
Oh my gosh. Um, this isn't a six hour podcast, is it Garrett? Um, no. <laughs> so, um, I'll start off. I, I you know, I, I've been thinking about this and I think the first realization that, that things weren't necessarily going to go as planned, um, it, you know, in my, in my ideal journey for, uh, being a composer, it was an undergrad and, um, the the orchestra you know they had this yearly competition of like basically they they read through a bunch of pieces and and one person is is picked and I, and I was picked my senior year um and it was this 20 minute orchestra piece which looking back I'm just like my god why did I write a 20 minute orchestra piece but um, <laughs> but they picked it and so it was like all right this is this is going to be great and and I remember going to the conductor and and you know showing him the score and like you know, I think it was after rehearsal. I'm just saying, you know, I think I think we can get more of this color out of this, and blah, 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 and I'm just going on. And he just puts his hand on my shoulder and says, "You know, Tommy, the great thing about new music is no one knows how it sounds, and so we don't have to worry about it." And then he walked away, and it was just kind of like, "Huh, here wow. we go. <laughs> Welcome to the field." Um, and and you know, I, I I've seen that I've seen that um, attitude you know, again and again in the professional world of, you know, you're sitting in a, in, in a rehearsal and there's, there's a music director or a conductor who has just every way of breaking down every phrase of this Mahler symphony and strings, you need to sound like melting chocolate and, you know, whatever. Um, and then it comes to the new piece, the, the, the new music piece. Um, and it's just like four minute run through shrugs. All right. Okay. You know, and, and so it's, again, you know, I'm beating the dead horse, but it comes back to being treated as an equal collaborator, right? Um, I'm in this weird position as a violinist and a composer at the professional level where I see the standard of what is expected for an orchestral audition, right? I mean, you have to be flawless. You, there has to be intent between behind every note. Um, and at the same time, you know, maybe as a composer you're getting a reading or a recording and it's like well this is the best we could do and you got to be grateful for it you know um does that boil down again just to curiosity or or i i just wonder how the respect for the living composer the respect for new music generally can be cultivated i guess at the at the level of academia as we're speaking to here well in academia i i i do you know with with every criticism uh, of the other party i think the composers also have to to look to themselves and i think i think one very damaging thing that that we have done over the past i don't know 30 40 years is in the curriculum introducing new music as if it is this this thorny dissonant um you know monster you know i mean like even performers today, I, I feel like they still have it in their mind that like Schoenberg and Webern are new music. <laughs> Stravinsky, right? Yeah. Right. Like, like that's, it's, it's old music. And I, you know, the amount of time Garrett in my uh, 10 plus years in academia of, of do, doing search and rescues of, of tone rows, you know, I mean, it's just like it, the curriculum needs to be updated. Um, sure. Like let's, and, and, and to be clear, like I, I do find that music interesting for a number of reasons, but the fact that in three degrees, I, I took at least three years worth of, of 12 tone and, you know, 
this very specific type of 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 20th century music um like that needs to be diversified so much more um and 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 that's what's that's what's in people's ears when they think of new music that's what's in their system and and i think that there was um a severe la- uh, a severe breach of trust um between academia and composers and performers so how, uh, does, so how does that translate on the financial front when we talk about scholarships and uh, commissioning fees, you know, is, is there a relationship in, at least in your experience between that lack of understanding, that lack of curiosity and the way contracts are handled, your ability to eat and pay your rent with the music you write? It could be. Um, but you know, if the person who's approaching you with the contract, um, you, you know, you would assume that they know what, what they're getting into and what your music is. And I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it comes down to, you know, our own set of ears, you know, what is dissonant to me might be unbearable for someone else. And so, you know, that I can't speak to, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, right. It's everything is subjective and, and we just carry on. Um, the, so you asked about, um, challenges, uh, for, for composers today. Um, okay, so the, the most relatively recent example of, of this type of unwanted adversity um, uh, happened uh, at a certain institution that I attended. Um, when I was given the offer, um, you know, I asked for it in writing. It was something that my dad was, you know, make sure, make sure you get it in writing. My, my previous teacher also said the same thing. Um, and you know they they had given some explanation as to why that wouldn't be possible. Um, but I'll never forget the way the guy that I was speaking to just said, "You know, I'm sorry we can't do that, but uh, you know, you, you you can trust me." Um, and at the time, as as a student, I felt like, "Oh my gosh, I I had said too much." Um, but looking back, it's clear as day that that was like red flag number one. Mm. You know, and so jump ahead several years. Um, where I've completed all of my coursework. And I'm notified that once the coursework ends, I'm expected to pay this absurd fee, um, X number of thousands of dollars, to write a piece that is required for me to complete my degree. Not and, you being paid for, not you receiving a fee, you're paying to write something. Correct, correct. Wow. Um, and at first I panicked because it was like, oh my God, did I, did I agree to this? Like, and, and I, I immediately asked, I was like, could you show me like where, like where this is written down? And, and they weren't able to. Um, and so the same person that I had dealt with um, at the beginning came to me and said, oh, you know, sorry, we forgot to tell you. But then so ensued this used car salesman pitch of why this wasn't a big deal. Um, Think of all of the good times that you've had here. Think of everything that we've done for you. It's just a couple thousand dollars. And I was just absolutely floored um, to, to be hearing that for a number of reasons. One, this person was a composer. Mm. So it's like, my God, like w- with all of the challenges that we, all of us face in the real world, you know, like the last thing that we need is for one of our own to just like push us even farther into the ground. 
Um, and, and, and for composers, especially academia is meant to be this, this kind of safe space financially, at least of buying time, you know, before we're out there in the real world. Cause I've already said, you know, the, the, um, the opportunities for musicians are, are, are little, but for composers, especially so. Um, and so this was, this was just like completely unbelievable that, 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 that this was happening. Um, and so eventually, you know, I was able to talk it down um, to a certain amount that I still couldn't afford, but it was clear that like, it was either I was paying this fee or I, I was not getting this degree that I'd worked for, you know, three to four years of coursework that, that were already in. And so I basically had to come up with the impossible decision of, do I just quit? Um, or do I put it all on a credit card, you know, and hope for the best. And I did that. Um, and, you know, a part of that conversation was also, you know, well, we don't do this for everyone, but we'll give you a performance of the piece. You know, the, the, the power dynamic and the, the gross misconduct of the situation aside, the fact that you're in an established institution that is giving degrees to composers you're making them pay to write a piece and the performance isn't even guaranteed. What, what are we doing here? What, what are we doing here? And, and, and this is, this is okay from the standpoint of another composer, you know, tell me you're completely out of touch <laughs> with the reality of, of grad students and young musicians without telling me, you know, I mean, it's, it's, um, pretty shocking and pretty ridiculous. Now, on top of this, at the, at, at the end of all of this, I defended the piece, I got the degree. Um, then ensued the two years of ghosting. Hmm. Emails were not being responded to. Uh, as far as I knew, the performance wasn't gonna happen. I spent a year writing the piece, uh, not using any of the institution's resources. This is all original material. I did it in, a, in another city, I'd already moved. Um, so I was paying an institution thousands of dollars to write a piece that at one point I thought would never be performed. And this is a 16 minute large ensemble piece. Um, all of that being said, you know, the reason that I, I'm willing to, to talk about it is I want to make things better in this field. I have dedicated my life to being a composer. I'm very passionate about it. Um, I, I don't ever want a student to have to deal with that. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we've seen many examples. I mean, of course, there are degrees of, of, of gross misconduct and abuse, um, some other high profile ones happening across the coast. Um, but this is, this is just, bullshit that, you know, we, we have enough challenges in our lives as artists and we don't need them to be self-inflicted. Well, first of all, shout out to your piece, Gross Misconduct, that, you know, you actually have a piece titled that. I want to make sure that folks know. Uh, that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'll ever come up with a better title, Garrett. <laughs> but I guess what my question is, uh, considering what you've shared and how this relates to the, you know, uh, challenges of so many other composers. What is an alternative track if you know academia has 
the uh the possibility of of really just screwing over composers as in this way there being no real front door for composers to orchestras to to pitch pieces have you thought much about what an alternative could look like for for composers yeah well so i think one of the problems is that again because there are so few opportunities for composers i feel like we're all just kind of um you know shipped uh, uh uh you know sent on this journey up the academic ladder um mm-hmm. just because, like that's the only thing you know and that's problematic for so many reasons right because it's like you can be a great composer and just not know how to teach right you know and and and, and it's forced an entire field of like yeah, let's say that like a quarter of composers actually have the capability of actually being good teachers or whatever you know, and it's the same with performers, conductors, and you know, teaching is its own um, is its own art form. Um, requires its its own experience and preparation, and and we're just treating it like, oh, they'll figure it out. In in my three years in, or, uh, sorry, in my three degrees of academia, Garrett, I t- I did not take one specific composition pedagogy class. Hmm. One. And, and we're all we're all going to teach. So I, you know, I would say unless teaching is something that you're passionate about and that you absolutely want to do, don't don't go all the way to the top. Um, you'll be severely disappointed. Um, now, I, I'm not saying that that's me. I mean, I I do happen to love you know exploring music with with students. Um, it's just like a lot of the other BS in academia that I can deal without, which is partially why I have no interest in, you know, doing that right now at, at this specific point in time. But um, in terms of other routes, I mean, you know, it goes back to, to the, I don't know, trying to be a complete musician. And I, I think that we need more composers as performers, more composers as conductors um, for a lot of different reasons. For one, it's going. I I I think that, you know, if you're passionate about it, it it will make your music more interesting, um, uh, more. Uh, I hate the word accessible, but accessible to to performers because you're speaking the same language, right? Um, yeah, and just just trying to surround yourself with some type of musical community. Um, I think that we've had in our minds that was academia and that's that's what you would go there for i don't want to say that that's not the case now but i think that you do have to be careful so we can talk about all of the service organizations that exist for composers you know acf new music usa all all of these places that to some degree can be a a meeting place but would you say there is an ecosystem of of composers who uh, can meet to you know to discuss what a good opportunity may be to maybe even get feedback on pieces. Does that exist, or are we looking at the issue of facilitating that sort of ecosystem for the sake of composers? We absolutely need to keep looking at at, at facilitating that. I, I will say, you know, um, one one of the benefits of my academic career is, you know, I I went to three institutions three institutions, three musical communities in which, you know, I developed a lot of, of long lasting, uh, partnerships, mentorships, um, 
you know, I feel like I, I, I have my composer people that I go to, um, you know, to bounce ideas off of. I feel like I have my performer people and, and that is one of the benefits, right. Um, of, of, you know, developing your network, your community. Um, and so I do think that, that that is something that, that academia can provide for you. Um, you know, from personal experience, I can't, I can't speak to other communities outside of academia just because I spent the last 10 years of, well, recently, the last 10 years of my life, um, doing that. <laughs> yep. Yep. I'm still reflecting upon <laughs> what, what onus do you put on the composer in this ecosystem? Because again, we, we, we started talking about earlier, the idea of composer and, you know, making a living, you know, in a, in a sort of peripheral way, there are so many composers out there that, for example, have no idea what MOLA guidelines are. And outside of the uh, uh, service organizations that I mentioned earlier, it seems like there is a responsibility for the composer to do the legwork of being um, embedded in certain communities and certain collectives, finding the salons to, to participate in. I wonder if you could speak to that, the composer responsibility in all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just like it's the orchestra's responsibility to find who's in the community, the composer has to find what is in the community, what is around them. Um, you know, this, this is perhaps somewhat related, I guess, but I, I, I do, try to push myself, um, you know, partially uh, selfishly and trying to keep myself entertained with what I'm writing, but also to, to, to really push my own boundaries as a creator. If I think back to the last several years of, of pieces that I've written, I have a string orchestra piece um, that I wrote for Kinetic on, Ensemble in Houston, um, which is a conductorless string orchestra. Um, and the piece was based off of the fast-paced card game Egyptian Rat Screw. Oh yeah, uh, I have a violin quartet that the that I wrote for Move Modern uh, Violin Ensemble um, for amazing women and violinists um, who I absolutely adore, worship the ground that they walk upon. Um, and I wrote them a piece where they were screaming out. Um, excerpts from NRA speeches and gun demo videos from YouTube. Um, a piece that I'm writing now for the Johnstown Symphony where I'm using recordings that were submitted by their audience members online. Mm. Uh, a piece that I'm writing now for Orchestra of St. Luke's where I'm collaborating with two wonderful friends, violinist writers, uh, Ling Ling Kwong and Giancarlo Lada, um, exploring themes in life of burnout, mental health, desire, depression, yeah. over idealizing. Uh, over idealizing. Um, so in that sense, it's like, I'm trying to cover as much ground of the human experience as I can mm -hmm. in these different projects. Um, as to, you know, if, if people are interested in those topics or if they're interested in my compositional aesthetic, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm at least covering some, some of that. Right. Uh, and it's, it's different for everyone, but, um, but yeah, I, I, at the end of the day, you know, you can't escape your own music. I've tried, um, it doesn't work, but at least, you know, changing direction and changing, changing the, the topic and trying to reach out to different communities through, through your music, I think yeah. is something 
I think that can even be broadly said for all people in in this so-called classical field. As much as some of us try to escape and get into something else, we just sort of transition and transform within the ecosystem, whether that be musician to administrator or, you know, composer to teacher, all of, all of the different things we, we talk about. We can sort of paint this map of, as you were just speaking to, the composer's responsibility to understand the world and write to that. And performing ensembles, orchestras, opera houses, their responsibility to program for those communities for, for 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 those experiences i think the other ingredient that i always think about based on my background is radio or or other ways to just get the sound out there and and again just normalizing new music as a thing that belongs in this box that we call classical i wonder if you can speak to uh exposure uh, as a as a, a sort of ingredient in, in pushing careers fo- uh, forward. We always talk about how exposure can't pay the rent, but there is something at the same time to, you know, a, a, a broad broadcast of a piece of music that will get a composer's name in people's ears that it wouldn't otherwise. Sure, yeah. I mean, exposure is definitely key. I, you know, I, it, I, I was just thinking about this the other day, how like, I, 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 I hate to draw the comparison, but like pop music has no problem with just playing things over and over and over and over, <laughs> right. and over and over again. It doesn't even have to be good, but they just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And, and, and that's, that's so interesting to me because it's like, I think what we associate with being good is really just what's familiar, you know? And, and, and so that's why, exposure is key because it's like like think how much of how everyone just hated the rite of spring at the premiere sure like like aside from the content like i i I don't know i could be wrong about this but like i'm sure it also just sounded like absolute shit (laughs) you know like like because you know a hundred years later like we've we've cracked the code on how to play Stravinsky, you know, have gotten good at the opening solo right yeah (laughs) it must have just sounded like utter shit um, and so like, like the, the, I think that's the problem of like, with programming is like how we just assume that, like, if I think back to the first time that I heard Brahms or not the first time, but I, I just remember going to the symphony, you know, at like 10 years old and just dreading it. Mm-hmm. It was awful. I didn't have the endurance, but over time playing it, hearing amazing orchestras, you, you know, all of a sudden it's like, oh my God, I love this. And so we, we have to keep it up like with 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 new music especially and and you're right i mean just using every every means necessary to to get it out there to get it in our ears because i, I think there comes a turning point for the orchid or for the listener where it's like oh i actually do find this one aspect of this music interesting yeah i think that's a really phenomenal point you're making just how repetition is how we get people liking a thing you know i i think there's there's definitely something to that i have one more question i want to throw at you but before i do how can uh people learn more about you some of your upcoming works and if they choose to explore commissioning you how can they do all of those things they can visit my website t as in thomas s as in sam doherty d-o-u-g-h-e-r-t-y composer.com um as as to why my last name is pronounced that way I believe the the short explanation is there were some German nuns who who got their hand on my 
on my grandfather's Irish last name and 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 change that up. Also, no relation to the famous uh, Doherty. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. So as we talk about all of these things to help promote the idea of the composer, first of all, just being in existence today, but their music being vital to these spaces, who do you cast onus on? Is it up to conductors to push their boards of directors to do more? Is it up to musicians to go into their communities and demand patrons, demand new music? What do you think is uh, as as far as the people, the the actual individuals who can help move this conversation and uh, the the programming of new music forward. Absolutely, it's on conductors. Um, I mean, there's there's one um, prestigious music festival that I attended as a composer that will remain nameless. But one of the administrators came to the group of composers and said, all right, for the next eight weeks, you need to be at the stage door after every performance and, and, and go to the conductor and say how much you enjoyed it, which again is, is, is commenting on the, the, um, absurd the power, pole power dynamic. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, we, they're the ones who have the power. We, we need them to want to collaborate um it's it's on administrators with in within programming um but it's really on all of us you know i mean i as a composer need to keep putting my best work out there um i need to just make it very simple for for you know programmers and and audience members alike to 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 want to listen to it um i think it's on it's on musicians too of of saying you know we don't want to you know, just play Bach through Shostakovich and call it a career. You know, we want to we want to get to work. We want to bring new things to life. Um, I think it's on all of us, Garrett. tune there called Extraordinary Instruments to wrap up my extraordinary conversation with Tommy Doherty. One of the things we talked about, Scott, was responsibility when it comes to highlighting new music and shifting the industry toward a more living composer centric mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We can always point, you know, you know me, I'm never one to point the finger, but <laughs> it's, easy, it's easy for us to say, oh, well, the the conductors need to be doing it. No, the musicians need to be striking until the you know. So we can always say who should be doing what and uh, who has the most weight and and all of those things. But I like to think of it as okay, where am I in the industry? What can I do? What opportunities do I have to push the conversation forward to, uh, for equity for living composers? So from where you are in the industry, you know, as a as a radio host. What do you see as your responsibility or your ability to positively impact the field toward centering living composers a little bit more than they are today? With the microphone mm. 
and we still have an audience of about a million and a half to two million people yep. any given evening and overnight. So uh, that's number one opportunity to broadcast it. But I have found the one-to-one interactions mm. a lot more meaningful. Yeah. Because not only have I turned some people's minds, have I turned their thinking around, I've also gotten a better understanding of where they're coming from and how they've developed the opinions that they have. And it's not all nefarious, you know, yep. it's not all from a bad place. It might just be bad intel, mm-hmm. you know. So um I I really find the 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 missionary work, the one-to-one yeah. work is yeah. uh, a lot better than the microphone in my in my mind. Yeah. One thing that I have found myself really having to do is to advocate for composer as a career, as something that deserves all of someone's time. Mm. I think it's so easy, uh, you know, certainly uh, maybe a half generation ago or a generation ago to think of anything in the arts. If you want to be a musician, if you want to be a dancer, composer, you you name it, that's great. Now your day job is right. this or or whatever. And I just feel like really affirming composer as something that some people are called to do and should have the right to do, certainly in the United States where we have the resources for that to happen, that's something that has to be affirmed. And I found that that has been a lot of my work lately, really convincing institutions to put some actual money forward and to put some actual time forward because composer is a valid and important, probably the most important part of this right. art form that right. we're in. And it's not dead. It's it's not you know, no more. It's not strictly historical. So what are you going to do as an arts leader, as a CEO, as a president, as what, you know, the various people that I'm on the line with to really affirm that that's been, you know, my job as well as, you know, just highlighting the perspectives as well, uh, as well as we right. did this week on, on, on the show here. Just going back to what Kenny, uh, Kenika Ambrose, uh, in Canada said, it would be a disservice to listeners if in 50 years we're still talking about the 19th century canon rather than those that are working today. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're going to get into A the- disservice. Where we're, we're going to, you know, someone is going to be serving, you know, time, you know, not music, but serving time. I guess we're, we'll, we'll see, but uh, we're going to talk about it a little bit and we're going to get into the fourth movement, the triloquy movement with a gem. Oh my gosh. This is Carlton Williams singing prison song. I could listen to that for a long time. I'm 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 gonna light up some green a little later and and spend some time with that later on this evening. You 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 know I play the flute, mm-hmm. so it's hard for me not to listen to that track and just wish I was him or her. I mean that is 
it's one thing to be at the front, you know, as a as a musician, you know, the lead guitarist. Mm-hmm. But I feel like every, no matter what sort of ensemble or band you're thinking about, there's that one person who is not in the front that you also tip the hat to, you mm-hmm. know, whether it be the uh, the bass player or or the drummer, or for me in this sure. case, it's that flute player, whoever that was. Oh my gosh, brilliant stuff! But you know, again, that's called prison song. We're here in the fourth movement. Uh, the Triloquy Movement, to talk a little bit about um, the the former president who seems to be on his way. For people who don't watch news like me, <laughs> what's going on? What are we talking about here? Well, the former president left his compound of Mar-a-Lago, and the news media treated it kind of like the O.J. Bronco chase. They mm-hmm. were in airplanes. Except and, O.J. was innocent. Go on. And... <laughs> then what they did was they followed him so that he could go up and be uh, arraigned in New York. Mm-hmm. Do you think he'll see the inside of a jail cell? I don't know. That's the thing. And that's what we have to talk about here. If he doesn't, the precedent that is set is so dangerous mm-hmm. because it just says out loud, as many people believe now, some people are above the law. And there are a lot of people who come to that sort of realization from various directions. You have folks who believe that someone like Donald Trump should not go to jail, you know, for, for whatever reason. There are people, you know, I will, I will, I'll speak for myself, you know, black folks like me who believe that there are is a real system of oppression and a real system of white privilege. So it wouldn't surprise me if he doesn't go, but if he doesn't go, the dangers therein are are so great. I hate to even think about it. On the other hand, if he does go, you know, the the martyr sort of thing that's going to be built around him is going to be dangerous in a different way for right. for certain people. It's a damned if we do, damned if we don't sort of situation right now. Let's point out, though, that this is the Monday before the Tuesday arraignment. Yes, yeah, so if y'all whatever. are riding on right. Wednesday, so, we don't, we're not there yet. We don't know. <laughs> right. So, in fact, just before we recorded, it was leaked that all 34 counts that he faces are felony accounts. Mm-hmm. So that's no joke. Now, if you want to, if you want to know how serious they are, Watch if they put a gag order in place. If they put a gag order in place and then he talks about it, that's automatic 30 days in jail. Yeah. So if they don't do that, then I think that's going to be a good indicator. Also, I don't think this is the this is the case that's going to get the big that's going to get the big sentence. Uh, you think it's something out of Georgia that's going or or elsewhere. Yeah, there's dominoes lined up just waiting to fall. And in fact, there's a few people that I follow on social media that I trust that think that Atlanta will go Wednesday or Thursday. Mm. So before we cut on the mics, the conversation that we were having was this idea of being an abolitionist, the idea that people should not be locked up in cages. I, I'm and I'm definitely on that side of the argument. I just don't like jails. I, I don't think- what do, you, what do you think would be a good pen, penance? And that's what's difficult because- when I think about, for example, someone who uh, is in jail because they sold some weed or some crack, for 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 that matter, I don't think that is deserving of of being locked in a cage like an animal. There are certain things, you know, 
that can be done. Now let's talk about violent crime. I think there is rehabilitation, there's therapy, there's all sorts of things that we could pour money into other than just watching someone rot in a jail cell. Now, with all of that said, there are certain places where I do draw the line where I don't know quite what rehabilitation or or those sorts of things would look like. For example, child abuse. Mm-hmm. You know, right now, my my spirit is that person needs to be away. That that person needs to be somewhere and not in general uh, populations of the world. I'm having a similar feeling, and it's a little dissonant when it comes to Donald Trump. Because we have to show people that you can't just do whatever you want. Right. And that's that. And you you can't deny that there will be a, uh, dare I say, white lash to Donald Trump going to jail, much less getting a considerable sentence. Mm-hmm. There, th- th- that's that's going to create a dangerous situation for a lot of people who are not his supporters. Yeah. It's damned if you do, damned if you don't, because if, like you said, if it isn't charged, then the precedent is sent that way. And I think that's a more negative precedent to not charge somebody who, (laughs) yeah, let's just say that it just doesn't look good right now. So there's a wide gap between people who are ride or die Trump and people who are not just as we were saying with platforming uh, new music and living composers, we can always point the finger, talk about what somebody else needs to be doing. You know, we we all do it, but I'm I'm trying to bring that other side even to this conversation for those of us who never voted for the man, who have always recognized his racism, his misogyny, his classism, all of those things. What is it our job to do at this point to fill in the gap? between these communities that have been so separated because of politics and the and the conversations we've been doing what do you see as your role in building that bridge filling that schism if any i don't think that i have one hmm. some of this one to one stuff that i was talking about the yeah. the one to one conversations have been with people who are his supporters yeah Let me ask you this. Do you think do you think it would do any good? Is there anybody out there that's a diehard former guy fan mm-hmm. that after do you have anything that you could say that would make them go, by golly, you're right? It's hard to think. And I think about Elaine Foreman, the Jewish violinist who decided to teach Louis Farrakhan. Mm. I'm thinking about, uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Shout out to the blues musician who became friends with all the KKK people and, mm. and uh, changed some of their hearts. So the changing of the heart, I have to believe is possible for every person. It's just that how, and, and not changing their heart. So now they're on my side or now, you know, they're right because they were previously wrong, but you know, that compassion for, humanity how how do we inspire that because and i don't know in my opinion someone who is who really has that compassion for living people can't support a person like that mm. and my compassion does not stop at donald trump so it just it it leaves just this really murky area for me to have to continue to think about and and chant over and and meditate on um but i think i don't know i i think in the meantime i, I would at least we we need to see the mugshot. Mm. We, we we need to we need to show the He'll, American people that you can't just get scot free off 
and 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 not pay anything for the crimes that you've you've done. You don't think that that's going to be a way for him to grift off it? What do you mean? Like put it on a on a coffee mug and oh, sell it course. for oh, fifty dollars. You know, the the t shirts will sell out of of his mugshot, right? So there there are some people who you know are always just gonna be ride or die. At this point, you know, it's like the the famous question by Martin Luther King Jr. Where do we go from here? From here, I think at this point, if there's a way for us to center humanity and center a more united way forward with people on every side of the conversation making compromises and being willing to be wrong, you know, or being willing to learn, maybe we can at least create an environment where the dialogue can be broadened and mm. and some room can be made. I think the final question is, do arts institutions have a place in this conversation? You you know what would be typical. Oh, don't talk about that on the air. We don't want to be this. We don't want to be that. Mm -hmm. In your opinion, is it important for any sort of arts institution, radio, orchestra, opera house, whatever, to be involved in this dialogue, to put forward programming or to just engage the fact that that is something that's happening through classical programming or artistic programming? Like I said earlier, it depends on how they handle the characters. Yeah. Because I don't think that anything should be put up that might be construed as glorifying anything right yeah because we don't want to do that but we do have a historical responsibility mm -hmm. to make sure that this era is properly documented and that would be my question to you what's the acceptable amount of time between an event and a piece of art that speaks to that event you know, like if somebody was going to write for the Twin Towers mm -hmm. or yeah. Parkland shootings, what is, what's the good length of time? And then not only was the good length of time, but what's the subject matter? Are we going to, <laughs> who's going to commission the, um, the ode to Trump or the, you know, the, the, the fanfare for Trump forever, mm -hmm. as opposed to the person who's going to write the, uh, insert word on the tragedies of Trump or what, you know, th there are so many musical way ways mm. that uh, it, the, the conversation could be realized. I think what I think about most is the fact that a, this is history. What's happening hasn't happened before mm -hmm. as far as I understand. And when people look back, not only at the event in history, but the ecosystems and the conversations surrounding it, will classical institutions be the institutions that are just dark that we won't have anything to talk about in 50 years as it relates to this. We'll go back to news articles and what journalists have done and firsthand accounts. We'll, we, we will have all of that. Mm -hmm. And we won't have anything from the classical institutions, from the artistic institutions. I think there's ways to, to program and engage this conversation and to uh, you know assure people that the arts does not ignore the rest of the world like it has for for so long right and i think that's the responsibility of each and every one of us we're doing it this way right on, on the podcast there's a way to do it if you're a, a an orchestra a radio host what whatever that that is there and i think really it's our responsibility to try to explore how we can do that because at the end of the day we have to create a culture where classical music so-called classical music is not just separated from everything right. else. No, we're here too. We're in the conversation as well. And this is how we're engaging it 
from our vantage point. So that would be what I encourage everyone to do this week. Again, this is being taped on Monday night. So if something just wild happens, in the I'm next afraid couple to look days, at my phone. We'll, we'll just talk about it next week. And hopefully we'll be here to <laughs> mm. talk about it. Anyway, um, happy beginning of spring for those of you who don't live in Minnesota for all of the you know we, we had a a friend visit um from a shout out to Kevin Day he lives in Toronto so he he didn't want to hear from us right. you know <laughs> but anyway happy spring everyone happy april thanks always for taking a listen and we'll see you next week